Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Super excited for our guest today, former New York Ranger goalie Mike Richter. But first, I want to thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. All right, it's time for Mike. Mike Richter spent 15 years with the New York Rangers, where he was a three-time NHL All-Star, a Stanley Cup champion, and an Olympic medalist. He retired in 2003 and was named to the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame five years later. He is currently the president of Rightcore Energy and a key spokesperson for environmental issues and a leader in the arena of sustainability. Mike, welcome into the back room. Gosh, thanks for having me, Andy. Great to be here. Um, I want to start off by saying that uh, you have a reputation of being a really nice guy, and I could vouch for that personally. I don't know if you remember, but it was certainly a big deal in my son Sean's life a bunch of years ago. We had met through a mutual friend, and I had asked you, because my son was a lifelong hockey nut, he played, he, mm -hmm. he was a sports management guy in college, and he was looking to get into the NHL. In fact, his dream as a New Yorker was to work for the Rangers. And wow, wow. Um, I, I asked you if you would give him some pointers and send him on his way. And you did. I think you spent like 45 minutes on the phone with him. And uh, he subsequently got a job as director of hockey operations at Brown University and then parlayed that oh. into a video coach for the Bridgeport Islanders, which is part of the New York Islanders. So he didn't quite live his dream, but he got pretty damn close. Uh, that's fantastic. Well, that's all on him, man. You know, those jobs are not easy to come by. And... Great for him at Brown University. Um, we had, you know, so many good people in and out of the Rangers system just through their marketing and through their production and, you know, obviously the coaching staffs and it's so difficult to penetrate. Oh, yeah. So he's done something right at least navigating that world. Not yeah, easy. no, when he was in college, he had a paid internship with the Caps down in Washington. So he he's one of those kids who literally got a chance to live out a dream. So, and the other thing is I got to share this kind of funny story of my own with the Rangers. When I was a kid, I used to busboy at a restaurant called Cairo's in Inwood, New York. And uh, I think it was just a matter of days after that massive brawl with the Flyers in 78, <laughs> the whole team came in for like their end of year dinner. And these guys were still sporting bandages and black eyes and bruises. And uh, I went over to take N Nick Fatiu's plate away. He was done with his plate. I mean, literally, there wasn't a speck on his plate. And I said, uh, can I take your plate? And he picks up a knife and he goes, touch my fucking plate and I'll cut your fucking fingers off. And it was, it was like that scene in Goodfellas and there was like a moment of silence and then the whole team just busted out laughing. And literally again, like Pesci, he pats me on the back. He's like, ah, I'm just kidding with you, kid. Yeah. Well, good, what a great good story. Shoot you after that. <laughs> and I still have the placemat. That I I asked them all to autograph. I still have oh, it. That's cool. Yeah. So that was yeah. There's some great characters, and and he was uh, a, a kind of prince among them. What a what a good human being he is. Tough guy, and it's funny too. You get to know some of these dudes that are so tough on the ice, but they're really big hearts too, right? Yeah. And he was uh, in a suit and tie during that fight because he was injured. He couldn't even fight. But I, apparently, well, he got some revenge a few games later. I'm sure he found a way to extract the toll yeah so i want to ask you about your upbringing and how the game of hockey first came into your life i know you have an older brother who played uh, mm -hmm. hockey and was a goalie and i want to ask about that in a second yeah. too but how and when did you start playing hockey 
You know, it's it's so interesting too, just how lives are influenced by the environment around them so much. I grew up in Philadelphia. I loved all sports. I played football. I pole vaulted one year. Was not good. Uh, lacrosse, um, soccer. You know, it just I, I had. I was I'm the youngest of seven, four older sisters, two older brothers, and just a band of kids in the neighborhood. And we played everything. You know, makeup games, um, organized sports, all of it, and. Um, I had a good group of friends that were pretty athletic, so we were always, that was kind of our focus. But the Flyers were expansion team in Philadelphia in 68, and they had immediate success. They made the playoffs that first year, which was not an easy gig back then. The um, And uh, at the time, Bernie Perrot was kind of their all-star, Bobby Clark. It was a you know, cast of characters that we all kind of know for the Broad Street Bullies. And, you know, as a Philadelphia Band, it was hard not to like them. It's a scrappy city, and that was a <laughs> particularly scrappy team. But they had a ton of talent, and so I, I grew up that that was my hometown team, and so it was impossible not to follow them and want to play hockey. And so we played all the time in the driveway, constantly just just ravaging our front lawn and <laughs> garage door and each other. And um, my father finally allowed us to. Uh, I joined a learn to skate program, which I'm like, I don't want to learn to skate. I just want to play hockey. And, and how old like, were you around that time? Five or six, mm-hmm. six years old, probably. And I can remember even being picked up from school the next year for skating lessons. I was like hiding in the bus. I didn't want to have to go because, you know, you're wearing figure skates and learning how to stop each way. But there was a program there that was really smart. They said, you cannot play the game unless you know how to skate. You're going to learn to skate first. You get your little white ribbon, then you can go play. And it really served me well because even as a goaltender, and maybe particularly as a goaltender, you need that balance and that feel on the ice. And it was a huge, helpful foundation of friends to this day with the family that taught me to skate the Mule Runners back at Wissahick. And they were an amazing group. And really, I didn't know that um, how good they were um, at uh, teaching skating until uh, Barry Smith, um, who worked for Detroit for years, um, we were doing, I was at the Elmira Soaring Eagles hockey school one summer and they had some grainy film of the players out in the ice. And I looked like an idiot, you know, I had these pads or trailing deer hair and just a disheveled teenager. And they had a sprint from one side of the ice to the other. And guys were kind of laughing and I was too, particularly funny. And, um, he said, no, that's a very good stride. That's that 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 that's the right technique. And I was thinking, yeah, I'm actually pretty fast on the ice. And uh um maybe there's some promise there. And um, you don't know a thing about how good you are. You're just constantly um judging yourself against your peers and hopefully some older kids. And as time goes on, you 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 find a little bit of success and get some momentum. But it's an interesting moment in your life because it's not always the bait. And how much of an influence was your big bro on you? My, my older brother is probably the largest influence, really. Um, you know, he, he's three years older than me, so he shot up about six inches one summer. But I, I used to stand on the pew next to him, or the little kneeler next to him in church. He died. Like, do you think we're twins? Because, you know, we're the same height. And uh, there was a lot of competition there. Um some friendly, some not, um, but I learned a ton from him. And, and he was kind of, you know, I idolized him. So if he was trying something different in net, I'd try it. But it's a real advantage being the youngest um, 
uh, my older brother played, you know, in men's league. And as, as a 12 year old, sometimes they need a goalie, see around there and guys are having bigger, heavier shots. And you get to see if you can hang with those guys. Um, but you know, mistakes he'd make, he'd say, well, look, you know, when, when someone's coming in and changing the angle, you know, be behind him a little bit. So, you know, you only move in one way. And that's a pretty sophisticated concept for a you know, nine-year-old to have, but a 12-year-old starts to figure that out. And I was, I benefited so much from him. And really what was going on in U.S. hockey at the time and kind of all sports, there's just, there's more professionalism injected. So my opportunities three years later were so much greater than his from development camps to scouting to, to pro scouting. So um, I owe a lot to him. He, he helped pave the way. What role did the Russian style of hockey play in your game? Was someone like Vladislav Tretiak an influence on you personally? It's so interesting you asked that. We were just laughing about this the other day. I always felt a little bit of a chip on my shoulder growing up in Philadelphia. You know, I know my peers at 12, 13, 15 years old in Montreal are playing with the best in the world. That's where the hockey hotbed is in Canada and in Russia too. And, um, you know, I was still the Soviet Union and they had this kind of closed system all around. It's certainly a closed system. They wouldn't let you watch their practices when you're on those national teams. It wouldn't let you film them. And um, so it was this mystery. And of course, a mystery that would even deepen when they came over and could skate like the wind and beat the pants off of some of our pros early on. And um, U.S. hockey back then was called A Houses, American Hockey. I don't know what the hell it was. The Association of Hockey U.S., something like this. And um, they put out little training manuals and everything else. And, and the off-ice training, I really kind of married as a young kid. I just thought, oh, my gosh, I'm only playing, you know, 20 games. Someone in, uh, you know, Montreal's playing 50 games. Uh, they're playing against the best in the world, and I'm screwing around here in, in, in the league that – you know, isn't as good as that. And if I ever want to make it, and I did find as early as I could remember in the NHL, I better get training. And so my brother and I did a lot of training off ice. And truly, the the Amateur Hockey Association of the U.S. put out training manuals that had a lot of the, um, that is a lot of Tretiak's very drills. Um, a, a guy named Anatoly Tarasov became quite friendly with um, some of the high up officials in the U.S. and traded training manuals. And Mike, I mean, these things are crazy, you know, doing blitz squats and everything else at a young age really helped my my ability to move in net. And so I, I ended up very specifically training um, a hell of a lot more than probably my peers would have just because I thought I needed it. And I probably did. And I think it became what I think was, you know, what I envisioned to be a real deficit growing up in Philadelphia at the time. As I look back, there are great, great players, and now they really produce a lot of great athletes, and for hockey in particular. That became a strength because we were doing these things, and you know, you would just call up, and back then there's no internet, and you'd like run to a coach, go, "Do you have a manual?" And I was like, "Who is this kid?" Uh, but you know, I bet she would show up in the mail, and man, I would go right out back and in a big concrete patio in the back, and that's all I do. I, as much as I could, I get up, I do a bunch of workout crap that I thought was good. I, you know, if Rocky was playing, I'd drink some eggs. I think, well, I'm ready. <laughs> we all, we all did the egg drinking thing at one point. Yeah. yeah. Some of us admitted, yeah, others don't. Weight loss because you blew chow after that one. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, it was, it was, it was awesome. And, you know, I played other sports. So it was good. But that, I believe that really helped, uh, my brother and I develop quite a bit. 
It, you know, it speaks to the subject of greatness, in particular in sports. You always hear these stories of Michael Jordan got up at 6 o'clock in the morning and just shot free throws all day long, or Serena and Venus Williams and how they play. I guess my question is, can you teach great and become great, or are you great and you just do the things that bring it out? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Andy, and I don't have a great answer. I think insanity really helps um, because honestly, I got three boys and I just, I think back and you have no perspective. This is just who I am. This is what I do. Doesn't everybody do this? And at 12, 13, 14, it was insane. Like I would get up and I could be on my back patio for five hours doing God knows what, jumping jacks and split squats. And that was a good day for me, you know? Um I did everything. I had fun, but that to me was like, it, it was like breathing. You had to do it because mm. you just could not do it. And, uh, and you know, I, I thought there was something wrong with me because I loved winning, but I couldn't stand losing. I just, I'm like, I've, I, I'm even, you know, as, as a pro, sometimes it's just sitting there saying, oh my God, it's so miserable losing and just winning was like, that's what you're supposed to do. Check the box. That's good. And there's tons of joy. Like I love practicing and all that. This was not a chore for me playing, but, there was something that that may not be particularly healthy, and I I often wonder. You see some of the intensity of the great players, like a Jordan. You know, we all watch that tremendous doc on him, oh, and, and it's amazing. You know, the, the psychology of that is mm -hmm. pretty profound. This guy would make up slights that other people were giving him just to motivate himself and prove him wrong. You know, Muhammad Ali. You know, in his mm -hmm. way is you know. You know, you're not respecting me, and I'm going to show you. And that you have to have that type of edge every day, 24 seven. And so that you, you look back and go, "I was uniquely qualified to stop a hockey puck." You know, and it's a lot of effort for a pretty, you know, what you could say is a meaningless task. But on the other hand, it's you know, mining that that space of of trying to achieve personal excellence. And I don't want to overplay it. But it's that's what's compelling, you know? Yeah. Well, there's the athleticism, which can make someone great, but you raise an yeah. interesting point about the intelligence and the psych out and all that. And yeah. Yeah. Ali was a master at that. But one of the best things I've seen in sports TV was one of the 30 for 30s that MSG does. And it was on yeah. the Knicks and the Pacers. And they profiled Reggie Miller and yeah. John Starks. Starks was a great player. His dunk over Jordan was amazing. Amazing. But amazing. when they interviewed Reggie Miller, he just went on in such a great, humorous way about how he would do this mind fuck on Starks. And he explained it with the precision of a psychologist. And then they went to John Stark and he was like, man, that dude made me mad. <laughs> and you saw the difference. Reggie Miller completely understood that he can just mind control John Starks. Yeah. And that gave him Amazing. just another edge. And you wonder like how it's much just... of that goes on. Like the famous ones like Ali, all the trash talkers that are famous, we know about, but how much of that goes on where like you don't see what somebody whispers, like in a scrimmage line of a football game when they're about to snap, oh, like ew. who says what to whom, you know, like your mother's this or your father's that. That's constant. And, you know, you have guys that are pretty overt about it. People yapping all the time. And you see them in the NHL. You see them in front, you know, Sean Avery in front of uh, uh, Marty Brodeur years ago. But other people are more subtle about it. You know, they might not say anything until that last free throw is in. And, and just they know how to put the knife in. 
but it's part of the game, right? And it is part of sports. I don't mean trash talking in particular. I mean, psychologically, and it comes in every shape and size. You know, Brian Leach was a guy that I played with and a good friend of mine, a really shy guy, very quiet. You don't need to be trash talking to be the best competitor in the world. And it can come in any form is my point. And mm -hmm. he was, you wouldn't realize how motivated what a warrior he is for Michelle. He was pure poker face all the time, mm -hmm. but he was unbelievable under the surface. And I think of um, a, a, a great coach I had at University of Wisconsin, was quite young, gave his book on uh, mental toughness training by a guy named Jim Lair, ended up becoming a friend and really was great strategically for me. I mean, he just was amazing. Um, worked with Pete Sandbris, a lot of great tennis players. And, and I just, you know, what makes you great today, but not tomorrow. And the big thing is whether it's Wayne Gretzky or the force wide player, are you playing to the upper range of your capabilities every day? That consistency is the mark of a champion, right? Wayne Gretzky was great because he had that ability, but he was really the great one because he was great almost every time he touched the ice. That's the difficulty. You know, you've seen it in, in the, the Williams sisters were amazing. Um, Tiger Woods, you know, was winning at a rate that was unprecedented, you know. Um, uh, so you're, they're, you're doing something right psychologically because it's the same damn body that you're mm -hmm. using every day. And today I have a shutout tomorrow and then in five. Is that, can you rely on that? No, no. you you need somebody that's going to show up every day. You're going to have wins and losses. You're going to make mistakes, but you have to have some base level of excellence that permeates every performance or else, you know, you, you're just not going to be considered great. But there's a forward was written to that book that was going to be and um, by Arthur Ashe. And he had relayed a story um, in his training as a, as a young African-American growing up. Um, and just, the, you can imagine the amount in, in the tennis world of, of heat he took in the South. And uh, he would have quite a temper, I guess, as a, as a young guy. And one of the coaches had this great quote, so those that God wishes to destroy, they first make angry. And you, know, you think of Reggie Miller and you think of being able to get under somebody's skin. And, you know, that's a skill getting under skin, but it's also a skill knowing how to just, uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll kill you with my serve. Uh, in the end, you can say anything you want. Right. You can throw eggs at me, but I'm out there winning the, you know, on the court. And and in the end, that speaks louder than anything else. And sometimes, um, you know, somebody who's a quiet person like uh, Leachy or, you know, Arthur Ashe is just absolutely immovable. Mm -hmm. You cannot um, intimidate them. Um, you're not getting them off their game. Uh, you can't make them mad. And if you do, look out. Because <laughs> uh, they translate that into greatness. And um, that that's what mental toughness is. And that does not come without a lot of effort, I think. Yeah. And, the, and so you... back to your point, back to your point, though, can you teach that? And I think there's, like everything else, you know, uh, Serena and, and Venus Williams were born with tremendous talent. They're big, strong, tremendous athletes. But they honed that level of greatness to something supreme. Mm -hmm. And I think their mental toughness, Tiger Woods, Mike Jordan, they probably had a level of that, but they practiced it. Mark Messier, you know, that they woke up and got out of bed at a level that most people don't, but then they made it better. Right. And so I do think you can teach a lot of it, you know? Yeah. And the flip side to that, to get back to Miller and Starks, is like the people you mentioned, like Arthur Ashe, their opponents knew that. I'm not going to rattle that person. I can't rattle that person. But it, Reggie Miller, like he incorporated the 
trash talk to Starks as part of his game strategy. It was almost as important as the playing because he understood mm -hmm. that he could break through with Stark. And that's how important that's it became. Point. It had impact. It totally yeah. had impact. And, and, and again, personalities, you know, for him, maybe it was effortless, right? And so it was easy to do exactly that. Other people that have different personalities, and he said, hey, I really want to get, you know, I want you to be the agitator, Andy. I want you to just marry that dude on the other team and make sure he's crying by the end of the series. It might take so much effort from you because of your skill set of personality. I mean, it's that, that it takes you off your game. So, you know, when you find someone that's a good agitator like that, that'll do their thing. Um, but conversely, you know, the great players, everybody's testing, you know, everybody to see how tough they are, to see, you know, how much they can, you know, handle the, the endurance of, of these full seasons and certainly how you're going to react. Cause as soon as you react to like, Oh, don't talk about his girlfriend. That's going to make them nuts. You know? And then they're on it. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think those guys are pressed and pushed in ways that we can't even imagine. And, um, it, it, you know, I, I've played and I'm also a fan and a spectator. And you go, well, gee, well, why did he let that go? And then, you, you know, when you're down the ice, you realize someone's pulling your skate out from under you. Someone else just hoofed you in the groin. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on outside of what you're watching on TV. So, yeah, there's uh, part of the game. So prep school has gained a lot of traction in the last 20 years, and it's become a hub. Mm -hmm for college recruiting. I know I went through that with my son. He used to play at yep. Chelsea Piers in Manhattan. Yeah. And he'd say like, the, this, the recruiters, the scout, they're not going to Chelsea Piers. You know, they go to the prep school. What was the prep school landscape like when you attended Northwood? Was it as relevant as it is today? I think in a way, I think it was almost more relevant. It, it, all these sports evolve and, and, and how you recruit it, how you train, um, how you get to the top of the field changes. And hopefully it's evolving into a good thing. Um, but I, I did feel that I, I, I kind of constantly felt that nagging about, hey, am I in the best league I can be in? Am I being seen, you know, um, is the competition making me better or, or should I be somewhere else? And you have to be careful because you're never done growing. So it's like you don't outgrow a league, but um, you do want to get to a spot where it's fertile ground for development and 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 being seen and all that. So there's really two things going on there. You want to through if you go to those great teams, but you also want to just have scouts, both pros and and college, look at you, give you advice, and hopefully pick you. And so Northwood at the time was an independent school, and they played more games than say the tremendously strong Boston League. Um, yeah, the other real hot bet at the time was Minnesota hockey is still tremendous. Like you get players coming right out of there at 18 and being drafted. They're, they're, that, that's a great public school league. Um, Detroit hadn't really shown itself to be the powerhouse that it is now back then. Um, but you know, what's interesting is, you know, hockey has a, a particularly interesting quick departure for it. If you're this great player, Jeremy Roenick's a good example, uh, the boys from Boston, just awesome player at 15, 16, 17, he just kept getting better. And so, yeah, you go to prep school, he almost went away to the Olympic team in 88. He went and played juniors. And now you've foregone your college um, eligibility NCAA-wise. I, I, I don't think, I mean, it would be, I guess, akin to just sign a pro contract in Europe or something if you do it at 17 uh, for basketball. Um 
So you really actually have a decision. If you're a supremely talented player at a young age, you may just go right to the the best uh, non-NHL league for for under 20. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's major junior Canada. But now you can't play NCAA hockey anymore. Right. And you're putting all the, all your eggs in that basket. You might just go on and get drafted like Bedard just was by Chicago and tremendous. He'll be a great player. But what, you know, what if you hurt your toe, God forbid, or what if you don't pan out? It's pretty good idea. You know, you have great players like Ken Dryden coming from Cornell and, uh, you know, tremendous players like Fox coming from Harvard in hockey. You, or you, you know, you don't see that as much in basketball, um, uh, baseball, and football. So, in a way, hockey's got these almost two extreme paths to the pros if you want to go. That you can still go to the, uh, an Ivy League school and be an all-star in the NHL, where that that that's a little diff- more difficult with some other sports. But when you get to the prep school back then, you were able to be seen. That that's mm-hmm. you know. You fish where the fish are, the scouts would go and say, this is the, the better league. Now you're starting to see a lot more kids go out to the USHL. It's a top amateur league in America, uh, United States Hockey League, and it's mm-hmm. primarily Midwest and Western based. You know, more games, tons of training, very professional. Um, the U.S. development team, of course, is just kind of an extension of that at, at an elite level. Um, my son's played in uh, uh, BCHL, which is a tremendous league in Western Canada. And same thing, your eligibility is there. So you're playing against bigger, stronger, faster players, uh, more games, a lot of development. You maintain your eligibility, then go off to college. So college is a little older now than it once was. So I, I just think that idea that you have to have in your head about and like doing as much as I can to develop is really important. And what you don't want, and I see a little bit more now, is um, – kind of interchanging the idea of I'm on the best team in America and we're winning a lot is different than I'm in the best place to develop. You know, no one gives a hoot that you won 50 games when you're 16. Did you improve? Are you better than you were 15? And that's the real thing. And that comes down to the person. Me, um, you know, situation, scouts or not, are you developing? And, um, you know, the minute you're done growing is, 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 is the moment you're probably on your way out. So let's shift to the uh, pros, the NHL. Do you have a great story from your rookie season? You were a drafted 28th overall pick in the 85 draft. Um, any great stories like being hung out a window by the older guys? Or <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, it really, you know, every old guy says, back when I played, it was crazy. Um, but that was almost like a changing of guard from, from, um, through the old time hockey to a little bit more modern day. And there was still a real division from like, we're the veterans, you're the rookie. And now I think it's a little bit more evolved going, hey, this rookie may be winning us the Stanley Cup. So right. instead of shaving them, maybe I'm going to buy him lunch and <laughs> right. a little bit. Um, but I remember uh, Chris Nyland was an unbelievable teammate uh, and a crazy man, a uh, well-earned reputation for having to screw loose. And, uh, you know, just tough as the day is long. We'll do anything for the team. But always a little bit of a loose cannon, you know. And in practice, he came in and took a shot at the end of practice. And I saved it. Big wind-up right in my pad. He's like, I hate goalies. Whack me with the uh, stick, you know. And he's kind of kidding, but I don't. I shot a puck back at him. I said, I hate stupid forwards and shoot a puck back at him. And, uh. Bobby Fruz was a, and Johnny Van Beesart were the two goalies of the team when I was there as a Yoster. And uh, I was like, Mike, no, just 
don't engage it. Okay. Like you're going to lose that one. First, he'll beat the crap out of you. Secondly, like, no, he, you don't know what he's going to do. I'm like, whatever. I, you don't got to stand up for yourself. And, uh, so I didn't think anything of it. And, uh, I'm going, I was late do sticks up and whatnot. I've only played a handful of games. So everything matters to me. And I'm like doing my sticks up. We're playing in Boston the next day. And I think they still had it, but they have an early morning game, like 11 o'clock in the morning game at Boston. It's awesome. You fly it in the night before. So we have a, a, a playing in a couple hours and I'm leaving. And I'm playing the next day, asking her to play the next day. And we had an old locker room attendant. Um, and he comes up to me and says, uh, Mike, um, then you're skating the, I found a skate in the dumpster. <laughs> I go, Benny, no, it's, um, no, I get my skates right here. I look up on my stool. I had a single pair of skates and there's one skate there. I go, oh, let me see that underneath, you know, coffee grise and old hot deep and everything else. There's my skate. He just said, I, right, you want to screw it, mate? Chuck my skate into the dumpster. That thing was gone. I, I would have arrived in Boston with one skate probably, you know, back then you'd have to take a week to break the damn pair of skates in too. And it was just like, I, my mouth was on the ground. I go, note to self, do not screw with this man. Um, good yeah, life, there's good a life lesson anyway. Crazy yeah, 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 yeah. Don't, don't pull crazy. But uh, he, honestly, he was, he was a great guy. Like I, I really like you know, Christian. My experiences as, as a rookie were really supportive. They're looking at you and saying, you know, are you, can we count on you? Are you going to do it of us? Um, you know, are you in it for yourself? Um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll press you and push you. But I, I have to tell you, I had great support in New York. You know, guys like Ryan Greshner, um, you know, Johnny um, as, as a goaltending trio that we were at the time. Bobby throws, you know, as Bob said, there's two nets and three bullies. We got a problem. But they were really supportive. And um, so I, I, my experience was phenomenal. But I think more and more teams start to figure it out, like make a pretty nurturing environment a better thing. You can still test the guys. You know. So the 94 season to New Yorkers is an incredible, epic season for a, a bunch of reasons. I want to start off with uh, Mark Messier guaranteeing in the Eastern Conference Finals that you guys would yeah. win uh, game six after being down three to two. You did win and you went on to the Stanley Cup Finals. But what did you think about that kind of a, you know, Joe Namath, like guarantee that we're going to win. Is that a thing that inspires the team to go out and, and now prove him right? Or is it like, fuck, what are you doing? You just jinxed us. It was a lot of both. Um, you know, Mark had been so good for us. The moment he stepped on the ice uh, in Ranger Blue and that year he was phenomenal. And, uh, very aware of the press and how we're portrayed and the message within the locker room and outside it. So this is not a guy who throws comments out there without thinking about them. And, um, and he's, and that being said, he's, he's pretty honest. When we were bad, he just say, no, we're bad. We're going to go. He's like, no, we had a rough game. Um, we've got to pick it up. Our, our defense wasn't good. It goes whatever it is. He, he, he wasn't just a robot. And at that moment, you know, hearing him tell it, he said, what he believed, uh, someone said, Hey, you know, you guys are down. It is the first time all series. We were four and oh in the first round, four and one in the second round, you know, walking into that third round against New Jersey, who had just below us a uh, number of points across the year. We had more six games, you know, a couple of exhibition games. We knew each other, we knew we could beat them, but um, they were a great team. And all of a sudden, 
No, we had outscored our opponents, you know, some crazy lopsided number. And now you're facing real adversity. Um, you know, the, the potential of your season being over for the first time. So it's a legit question. You know, you guys are down. Can you do it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can we can beat these guys. Well, it's in their building. You know, you know, a couple guys are hurt. You're not looking good, blah, blah, blah. They're a younger team. Um, there's a lot saying you can't. No, we can pick up this, that, and the other thing. Can you guarantee you're going to get a victory? Because if you don't, you're out. It's like, oh, I guarantee you can win, you know? And it was more over the conversational. And that <laughs> was that headline. And, uh, and, you know, and he, to his credit, he didn't say, well, it was quote. He said, well, I stepped in and now. I guess we're going to have to go out and win. And, you know, we didn't even know that conversation took place at all because there's so much press and you're in your own little bubble. And we just left the rink and showered out, had practice the next day. And you open up the post and there it is, Captain America or whatever it is, guaranteed to win. <laughs> and uh, he just, you know, looked at Leachy and Leachy's looking at him going, thanks, mess. And then he goes, well, I guess I really stepped in it, didn't I? And what well, should be funny, because was a pretty a veteran team, you know. That morning we're playing in New Jersey and one by one we're going to the locker room and, you know, guys are just like, what the hell is he thinking? What is this big mess? Could you please? And then, you know, the uh, the GM comes in, everybody comes in. Neil Smith's like, what the what's going on here? And that's like, you know, we had a little laugh and finally Keenum walks in and he's in no mood to be chuckling. And even he's just like, what? And the whole place, obviously, it kind of loses the top because it was such an inappropriate moment to have that said right and it became such a big thing and there's your star player saying it and you know the best part of the story is of course he goes out not only do we win but he scores three goals and and the game winner to win so yeah yeah that the great ones do write their own story don't they yep and so there's another great moment called the save which was the the, yeah. the penalty shot you stopped uh, yeah. Pavel Bory. I know you've been asked this question a million times. I'm going to ask it a little bit differently because everybody can try to get in your head and like you see him coming down at you and what are you thinking? But what I want to know is in that Bill Buckler, Mookie Wilson, 86 Mets kind of way, when you saw mm -hmm. him coming, did you understand the monumental significance of that shot. Not just about like, oh shit, if I don't save this one, we're going to lose. It's just, you know, awful. And then we go home and we're upset and blah, blah. Did, did you go to that place of if, if, if I don't stop this, I'm Bill Buck. Like I'm, this is my legacy. This is bigger than the season. Yeah. Uh, the answer is no. The simple answer is no, thank God. But I hear you, what you're saying. And in some ways, you know, back to the incendiary uh, plea that I was making earlier, you really do train your mind to be as present as possible. So, you know, this save against you, Andy, is the most important thing in my life. As soon as that's over, for good or bad, you might have scored, you might have, I might have saved you. It's the next shot. And unless you're thinking in that manner, you're going to run into a lot of trouble. And so I kind of felt like there was a little bit of a, kind of a, a big moment and in, in, in a way to gain momentum for sure. Either team's going to gain from that, whoever wins. I think there's a lot more pressure on on Pav. It's, he's at home. He scored buckets of goals that year. He's the most exciting player in the league. He was at the end of a shift, and I think he was actually a little tired. So there was an expectation there that he'd score. Um, and I, I played breakaway as well. And one of the things that Pavel 
Mink paddle so devastating was his speed. He would be just circling rail like doing nothing, and he'd take four strides and suddenly to break away. You were not prepared for it. And you know when he's out there, but he's still with that speed can happen upon you and it looks like a nothing play and he's on you and he scored before you can blink. What I like about a penalty shot is ref blows the whistle and says, All right, you ready, Mike? Yep. You ready, Pav? You can't move until he touches the puck. Okay, great. He touches the puck, but you know what's coming. There's no element of surprise. So you have a little bit of, um, I find them to be a little bit easier in that regard. But yeah, it was a huge moment. And what's funny about it is, too, loved it. I love that kind of moment. The whole damn world's watching. You know, there's 20,000 people in the stadium, all the lights, cameras. It, it's you versus him. You know, there's no like, I know what's coming. So you kind of, you, you grew up dreaming of those moments in the Stanley Cup. And it was so cool that it worked out, um, you know, to have that little bit and to come out with the save. But um, I didn't, you know, once you make that save, well, the whistle drops, you have a pop mm -hmm. drop right in your zone and you don't lose the next uh, shot or else that thing was moot, you know? So you kind of forget about it and keep going. Great stuff. And in the locker room, hey, nice job. Yeah, yeah, good, good. We got third period to go, you know? Um, and, and you know, afterwards, uh, I think my team said it was the largest save of his life. And I was going like, all right, let's not overbake this thing. You know, there's a couple other ones in there that <laughs> were important too. But yeah, they're momentum changing yeah. things. And you look back and it does stand out in your own brain in a way that you almost couldn't even savor it at the time. You're doing your job at the moment. So that's sort of a discipline that I tried to bring as much as possible. But you can't. You don't experience it as a fan until later, and and you just great check the box next next shot. Yeah, and, it's uh, like the, it it's like that old uh, wide world of sports. You know the, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Like here well, we are defeat. years later, and it is such a an integral part of your legacy. And it's just impossible not to think of the what ifs. Like what if what if it went yeah. the other way? Then you know like just like Bill Buckler, a guy all star first baseman, and just one play. Oh my that's, god! That's yeah, all people remember. You know. For better or for worse, do that, and and they do, they can define careers. And and you look, and I think that's one of the reasons sports is so compelling. Mm -hmm. You know, it is like life. You know, just accidents happen, and and just serendipitous things that you're just like, wow. You know, it could have gone so many directions, and so that's why we tune in. You, you know, the the the, the final chapter is not written until that you know that lady sings, right? Yep. So you had to retire because of injury. You had two concussions within like an eight-month period, and your doctor basically said, well, I'm not going to approve you to play. On some level, were you ready to leave kind of like, well, I guess that's fate? Or are you like, no, man, I can go another 10 years, and I wish I you could? You know, it's a tremendous question, Andy. Honestly, like, I, I, know, I know what the answer is, but it still almost surprises me. I was so unprepared to leave I can't even tell you. And part of that is just trying to be professional. If you had told me at 22, a year after I played, my career's over, I'd be like, oh, my God, you know, I would have been devastated and all that. But because, oh, you have all this potential you didn't realize. But you haven't quite become that thing. You played a year. You got to taste it. It was great. That's mm -hmm. really cool. By the time you're 36, that's who you are. Like, it, it, it took me a long enough time to recognize that I deserve to be there. I compete at this level. This is who I am. Your life revolves around it. it well, I didn't have kids. It was the most important thing in life is that next shot. That's it. I mean, and you have to approach it that way or else you're not going to be great. 
And, you know, even doing that, your job may be two weeks away from being done, either through injury or just poor play. And you have to think like that. You know, I remember reading an article on Brett Hull once after he scored like 76 goals one year. He said, I wake up in a cold sweat, think I'm never going to score a goal again in the middle of the night. That fear makes you great. And that focus is all encompassing. And you, you're selfish, you're completely entranced by this thing. And, and, you know, the Rangers had great success through 97. Then we had some really lean years. And I felt like, well, we're getting back on it. Here's a kind of horrible irony about sports or athleticism. You get better as you get older, but your body starts to fail one way or another, mm. right? Mike Jordan would be better at 50 because he'd be so powerful in the mind, but his body can't keep up with that. And at some point, even a guy that great has said, you know, hey, you know, you're still great, but you're diminishing and time to leave. So mm. one way or another, you either don't get a contract, you get hurt, or you just feel like you're embarrassing yourself. Wayne Gretzky scored 20-some goals his last year, but that guy had scored 96. So comparing himself, he's just like, mm, it's time to go. Right. And uh, he was still a real capable player. I still felt like I had years left in me. And you have to tell yourself that, too, or else you're not going to go out and play your next game well but i really believe that and i was in great shape and um again my mind was stronger than it was at 25 though my body was clearly weaker and that's a fluke thing that 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 i i got a slap shot that literally distended through the ear hole clipped me above my temple and fractured my skull and you know your arteries right there so he said you gotta let this thing heal that was in the uh late um spring I came back that year and, you know, my workouts, I would get lightheaded because there's a little bit of, I, I broke my eardrum on that shot. And it was all my fault. Like I turned funny and it just happened. But then I got a knee in the side of the head about a month into the season. I was playing well. I was playing well in that game. And it just, it was, it was like a light switch. Yeah. Was, I just felt different. And and it was, it was uncommon. Like I, I'd never had that type of feeling again. I'd gotten concussions before. I played football my whole life. But that one felt, it wasn't even a big hit in my eyes. Um, so I'm just waiting to get better. And instead, I, it was about three months of just feeling worse every day. It was, it was pretty profound. So it's a whole story unto itself. But to answer your question directly, I couldn't even bring myself to mouth the words when I felt so shitty that I, I just physically, I went from, oh my gosh, you know, I got to play Thursday. We're playing in Calgary. I want to play that game to, oh, okay, I got to get back to the lineup to, I got to get my life back. I got a young kid. I can't walk down a set of stairs, let alone up without feeling lightheaded and like I couldn't sleep at night, couldn't stay awake during the day. You've heard all these stories about <clears throat> post-concussion syndrome. They're really profound. I mean, it, it was a pretty terrible thing. And so then, you know, your body is is ready to roll, but you know, you, you have this governor because you, you can't really work out. And uh, so the thing that you love doing the most is taken away from you. And you're sitting around just, you know, looking at a doctor if I break my leg, you'll say, hey, man, that's, that's a bad fracture. It's going to be six to eight weeks. This is what you have to do to rehab. And you go, oh, that sucks. But okay. When you look at a doctor, some of the best neurologists in the business, they go, we don't know. It's a pretty scary thought because you're not feeling well. And you're like, I'm grasping here. Doc. Tell me that's, you know, tell me it's a month and I'll be okay with it. But they said, we think you're going to make a recovery, but we don't know when. Um, and she just said, I'm not going to. Clear you at some point. I went up and saw her up in Montreal. She was a neurologist specialist, wonderful person. And I just, I felt so crappy that I could hardly even process the uh, loss of my career. But then it's now you're worried about the loss of your 
normal life. Right. And I took 24 hours by myself. I stayed in Montreal and then I drove down to uh, Lake Placid where I'd gone to school and saw an old teacher. I, I, I couldn't even tell my wife for the first little bit that it was over. Like I could not mouth the words and I just had to think about it and just say like, you know, are they even prepared to own this? And the Rangers like, we want to have a press release. I'm like, can we just, no, 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 I can't. And I just, you know, had to kind of deal with it myself for a little while. It, it was really, really hard. But the good news is then you get your health back and like, mm -hmm. oh, maybe I can play. But, you know, the, the risk outweighed the benefits at some point. And so I was never going to be cleared to play. And so your career is over. And then you start to shift at some point from what you've lost, that's all you're thinking about, to, look, I'm 37 years old. I'm in good health. Um, I got young kids. I got my whole life in front of me. You feel ancient as an athlete, and you are. <laughs> but um, as a as a human being, you got, you know, hopefully more than half your life to live and something to give back because I certainly had a lot of uh, fortune going out to that point. And you did. You really did reinvent yourself. And it is crazy when you think about retirement and 37. It's like, my God, I'm 63, and it's like, yeah. like 37. And you have no clue. Get your whole life I mean, ahead that's of you. That's the irony, too. Yeah. Right? I mean, Andy, you know, someone would say, how do you feel? Like, well, I've never been 38 before, so I can't imagine right. being that old. That's, and that's right. an old person, right? And, you know, I'm married to kids. I'm an old guy because they're used to being 19-year-olds and a single young guy with an athlete. I'm, but, you know, I'd give a lot to be 37 again. So you got out of that situation that your hockey career ended ab abruptly that way. But you decided to go back and finish. You had done only two years at Wisconsin and, and you finished it. You applied to Yale, got into Yale. You got a degree in uh, basically studying ethics, politics, and economics with a concentration in environmental policy, and then proceeded to have this pretty illustrious career working in the area of the environment. Um, you're on the board of Riverkeeper, trustee of Adirondack Nature Conservancy, Sierra Club Advisory Council. Uh, you launched Athletes for a Healthy Planet, chairman of the Aspen Institute uh, Sports and Society Program and currently president of Brightcore. And so most hockey players, I guess, or most athletes are probably not known for their green energy and sustainability passions, you know? So tell us about Brightcore. The, the mission statement begins with, quote, our mission is to help our clients dramatically reduce their reliance on fossil fuels through a comprehensive approach to both energy efficiency and clean energy resources. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, the, the context is when you're done playing, um, I always had had an interest in the environment and, and frankly, entrepreneurship. And I think that that intersection of, of just limited resources and, and kind of unlimited demand of anything from water to electrons is, is fascinating and also an opportunity. So whether you care about the environment or not, there's a, there's a market opportunity to prevent, um, you know, resource diminishment in one way or another, right? Uh, you don't have to be a tree hunter to say, wow, you know, um, if people are demanding electric cars or the situation is demanding that um, our building stock moves all from oil, um, I, I can supply maybe the alternative and, and make a fortune on it. Um, the flip side of that is I, I believe in that mission because, you know, it's the quality of our our air and our water and all the things that every tree hugger would say um, materially influences our life, you know, and that's not a political statement. That's you know, the most conservative to the most uh, liberal person wants their kids to have clean air and water. And that's right. what we're kind of talking about here. So How's it sense. become so political, though? It's just, it's so <laughs> frustrating because, you know, I, I don't agree with Bill O'Reilly on pretty much anything politically, right. but years ago I heard him say something which I absolutely agree with. And he's like, 
We all have kids. We all want them to breathe yeah. clean air and drink clean water. How is this political? Look, I, I, I hold political views across the spectrum. So, I, and, and that, that I'm not trying to just give a political answer. I, I deeply disagree with a lot of the BS that's out there, but we don't have very intelligent conversations on any of this stuff. We have different ways of going about it. If you're liberal, if you're, you know, does, is the government the problem or the government the answer? But there's so much BS associated with this particular topic. It's it's maddening. And you, you got to have an adult conversation to recognize, hey, man, there, there's not enough water in the West. What do we do? That's not a political statement. That's a fact. Right. And you might go about it different ways, but start to have an intelligent conversation on how to solve some of these things. We have such big problems. But my God, we have such cool solutions, too, that we're, our solutions are so good and they're coming at such a rate that's so almost unprecedented. Problem is the problems are growing at an increasingly, uh, I guess, aggressive rate. So yeah, that the snipping and the BS and the superficial crap that we're going through is, is holding us back from finding real solutions and, and just, you know, improving the quality of our lives. Anyway, that's, you know, without making, um, you know, Brightcore to be yeah, the savior of all things. I think you're just monetizing a market need, yeah. and the market need is efficiency. You know, um, there, there's we have brownouts in the summertime with these heat waves and everything else. If you know, we're going to have to increase the capacity of of our grid and and all types of fuels. Um, and you know, the cleaner the better. And so, efficiency is the best thing. You know, the electron you don't use is, is the cheapest and, and cleanest one. And so, we're, we're putting in everything from LED lights to solar to what we're really excited about is, is ground source heat bumps. It's geothermal by another name. It's it's using the ground as a, a heat sink to pull the heat out of my house, put it into the ground, and in the wintertime pull that ambient temperature, which is about 55 degrees, and um, bring that in, have a heat exchange just like your refrigerator, cool your house. It's been done for decades in, in uh, Europe uh, and here, but it's really starting to gain traction here, both on a residential and commercial. We deal with commercial space. And honest to God, Andy, I... I I absolutely love it. You know, I've got three kids. Um, I'm not a saint, I, I, but I do want the world to be a better place. And, um, you know, I, I, I had as much self-interest as the next guy. I'd like to make a fortune doing it. But that mission, and I don't know, you know, where we're going to go, but where I think we're in the right place, uh, on the right side of history, um, the values-driven um, work that it is, I love. It makes me feel good getting up in the morning. But, you know, the fact of the matter is you're building something as hard as hell. Um, building a small company, I've done a couple now in the same vein, um, is awesome. But the, the 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 tailwinds that we're experiencing now is people are getting it. Like, huh, yeah, I am having trouble. My 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 energy costs are going up. Uh, the quality of our infrastructure across the country, across the world, is is aging. And what do you replace it with? The same old, same old. And look, you know, like we're not. Elon Musk has has done wonders for just our concept of what can be different instead of an internal combustion system you have this uh different you know propulsion system and these are cars that you know the idea of conservation where you're just putting on a sweater and suffering and saying well i'm, I'm helping the birds and fishes is kind of gone that's a better performing car than a lot of the cars that it's replacing and that's mm -hmm. where you're going to start making your mark when, when i can walk into a house and say i'm in a hot spot here or a cold spot there or poor poorly lit schools for kids when you start making the experience for humans better and it's cheaper and it's a smaller environmental footprint. You kind of have the trifecta and that's what we're aiming for. Mm -hmm. And you look at, you know, with, with climate change, the, the last few weeks have been the hottest in history. You look at monsoons and tornadoes and hurricanes and fires and droughts. What do you think is the answer? Because a lot of this does unfortunately come down to politics. Is it 
legislation, regulation? What has to be done, in your opinion? Um, I, all of the above. I, I think you're going to need the capital markets. Very, very powerful. They can't do it on their own, though. Um, you're going to need legislation. You're going to need NGOs, um, regular people making choices. You know, <laughs> I love this. Like, I don't want to get political, but, you know, it's been said that Every every purchase you make is a political statement. What do you believe in? What do you what are you financing right. um, by that purchase? And so, you know, again, these problems are not insurmountable, but they will not um, be solved by half measures. It's it's going to take everybody in every system that we have, and a lot of honesty along the way from both sides of the political spectrum. So, um, what do I think it takes? It does take legislation. You know, uh, our, our, our what you give tax breaks to and 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 uh, incentives toward um, fosters those things. And, you know, for years we've done the fossil fuel industry. It's been amazing. We built our world on this amazing technology, but, you know, it comes with a price tag that we didn't know. Um, and now we're starting to recognize. And so it's on to the next thing. And if solar panels are the answer in the interim, great. Um, if small nuclear later on surpasses this, super. Um, you know, I do have a lot of, um, uh, I guess, faith in, in the ability for us to invent and reinvent how our society goes. But I don't want to blindly put faith in that, say, hey, this, let's keep the status quo. And somewhere down the road, you know, Elon Musk's son is going to come up with the next energy system. That may not happen. And so we have trouble today. This is not our grandson's, grandkids' problem. It's ours. Um and we have a lot of off-the-shelf technology, which is what we deal with, that can be a good portion of the solve. It's not the total solve, mm -hmm. but you better start working on this now and change that 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 arc that we're on right now because it's a very dangerous place we are. And how do you deal with the challenge of America being so dependent on oil? I mean, we're still talking about coal. You know, how do we get away from that? that reliance or addiction on those sources of energy. The big thing is you have to have, a, like I said before, adult conversations. You have to be honest with it. You know, I mean, on the left, you have to understand jobs will be lost in the coal industry. And you can't say that and wash your hands of it. Figure something out to do that. Then then put solar panel manufacturers, put wind down there. But you can't BS yourself and say, you know, there's a lot of legislation right now in Appalachia where they don't like the aesthetics of wind. Really? How about mountaintop removal? But that's okay. You know, so there's going to be give and take. There's going to be winners and losers. And everybody talks to, you know, the, the, the buggy whip manufacturers went out of business when cars came in. And that was not nothing. But if you create enough jobs and it feels and it seems and the research shows that there's a lot of promise in jobs, homegrown jobs um, in the clean tech industry, now you're starting to, I mean, there's, Four more people employed in solar than there are in the in the coal industry. So uh, you know it does the jobs um, on each individual level matter. Yeah, but as a whole, um, in the aggregate, you're going to create more jobs by going in the right direction. So I, you just have to have these conversations, and it is complicated. And there will be again winners and losers, but overall, we have to take steps and and move. You know, the biggest enemy we have is inertia. Doing what we've done and, and expecting things to be better somehow ain't going to happen. It's just going to keep getting worse. And and we've got amazing technology that's not being deployed at rates um, that we need to have it. And um, to me, that's kind of our mission is to get that stuff out there. We're not mm -hmm. asking Andy, you know, try this, you know, new form of transportation that's never done. No, I'm saying just, we've proven this out. It works. We, we, we know what this, you know, we know what solar does. It's not an end all. It doesn't have everything. 
batteries are coming along when you couple that with the intermittency of, of renewables, wind and solar, you start to have a pretty capable system. Um, so much of our infrastructure, whether individual buildings or even the distribution has to be revamped. That is trillions of dollars and tons of jobs. Um, you know, the money has to come from somewhere and that's the capital right. markets have to be involved and it doesn't happen overnight, but better start addressing it because we're just, even if you want to stick with the same fuel source, we're not making ends meet right now. There are brand outs. There's capacity issues on that grid. We have to start adding capacity and you better do it in a clean manner. What's your thinking on the Green New Deal? It's got its supporters, its detractors. Yep. Uh, it's, it's so much of what you just mentioned is wrapped up in it. Is it a good sure. thing, a bad thing, or is it a solid framework to begin a conversation like you're talking about? It, it's a great thing, and and it's a great thing in that we're, we're having the conversation. It, that is it as much as I want? Absolutely not. Is it better than nothing? A hundred percent. And don't ever think that we don't have uh, a, a brown new deal, right? There's huge government subsidies and and tax uh, credits for the fossil fuel industry, and it's not a nascent industry. It's been with us for hundreds of years. So like. Our tax dollars have to go and are going somewhere. And it's just, where do you want to, you better put your money where your mouth is. And so if we're subsidizing our own demise, bad on us. If we're starting to say, look, we're taking those tax dollars, you know, the, the real price of a gallon of gas would be held a lot more if there wasn't gov government subsidy. And mm -hmm. I you know, challenge anybody to, to come back at me on that one. Why are we doing that? Well, because people can't afford to actually get to work and that's fair. But when you can start to, move those subsidies to areas that's not going to pollute our air or water um, with other technology, that's fair too. So um, I, I'm not out there to put a hate on uh, fossil fuel industry. It's got us to where we are today, but we got to go to the next uh, kind of generation of, of uh, energy sources and, and, um, and, and, and infrastructure. My last question for you has two parts. I know you're a music guy. I know you've been to the garden to see concerts. I have heard you talk about Billy Joel. When you're at the garden for a concert yeah. and the lights are down and Billy's singing piano man, <clears throat> yeah. do you look around and go like, oh man, this place, so, so many memories for you as a hockey player. Are you able to get really lost in the concert or do you just sit there and go, wait a minute, this is where the net was. And this is like, do, you, yeah. do you go there? I think it's so cool. Uh, so I had a privilege, Adam Graves and I, you know, Billy Joel plays at the garden all the time and Adam and I introduced him one time as if he needs an introduction, right? Who are the two old guys out there talking, just getting on the stage so I can hear this guy. Um, but it was just thrilling. We met him before um, Stefan Leteau was down there. We all went down there with their wives and met him. And, you know, he was just such an interesting guy. And you talk about great. Like he just, he was so um, practiced at that craft, you know? And we were asking, were you nervous before a concert? He was like, what do you mean? I get nervous. He's like, I used to have to kind of warm up. I just, he does it. And it was like, man, turning on a light switch. When he went out there, he just nailed it. And that level of brilliance, day in, day out. I just, as any performer, you just have to take your hat off to that. Um, but to answer your question more directly, yes, I can get lost in that because it's, it's, he's amazing. He's, he's amazing what he does. And it's, I couldn't believe the quality of, of his performance. Like how many of them has he done? And he's still, it's like the first time you ever heard it, you know? Yeah. Um, so it is, it, it's, it's, it gives you goosebumps how great it is. The flip side is, yeah, it's crazy to sit in that arena and go, wow, this was, this is my office. This is my home. And you look and right. your jersey's <laughs> up at one end and all that. So it, it, 
you, you, you find yourself going there a little bit, but mostly you just immerse yourself in that. I mean, when you have greatness on stage, take advantage of it, take it all in. Mm -hmm. And so the second part of the final question is, music is a window into people's souls. We already know you love Billy Joel. I was going to ask you your top five musical artists of all time. You already got one down, perhaps, but who are your top five of all time? God, I never heard Jim. You know, I grew up with older brothers in the sixties, seventies, the Stones, the Beatles, and mm -hmm. the Doors. Finally, someone that. says I, I the just, Beatles. Yeah, right. Um, and in a way, I I kind of discovered them. This small upcoming band from Europe. Um, Nate, uh, you know, I always kind of like the Beatles. They're not cool. The Stones are. Um, but just their music's brilliance. Who is that that you said? You know, just the Beatles themselves. Oh, you know, just their, their songwriting and and just how. Um, how great they were. But there's no form of music I really don't like, right? I mean, I, we used to have this uh, Schwenksville Bluegrass Festival that far from our house in, in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, country music, I got a buddy who's in the country music industry. Um, it, it, you know, I didn't grow up with that particularly, but God, there's some just great performers. So I like a lot of women vocalists like, uh, you know, Bonnie Raitt and... Uh, uh, you know, the the, the uh, North Jones and whatnot. I just find that I have it on the background all the time. And um, there's very rarely uh, music that doesn't kind of um, put you at ease or move you one way or another. Just a quick story is uh, Coley Campbell and, and uh, Joe Kosher used to, all the extra workouts, you know, they'd have the black aces out there after practice and stuff, and then they'd just have a bag skate. And they'd always put on tubes because it would just make it, you're you're turning yourself inside out, but you're at least doing it to tune, so it feels a little bit better. And there's a reason people put headphones in and work out with it. So, yeah, I I, I tried playing every instrument as a kid, and uh, I was talking to Henrik Lundqvist a little bit about this, and um, I just sucked. And uh, uh, I love music, and I really appreciate it. And maybe it's why I like it so much, is because I have a harder time actually doing it. But um, yeah, it's an amazing thing. It's a whole different world. And it's, um, there's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of constantly now with Pandora and whatnot. You just get new stuff in, piped into your house all the time that it's just, whoa, what is that song? I got to tag it. So, um, yeah, maybe it's because I, I, I'm not particularly good at performing it that I appreciate it so much. Well, Mike, you've been very generous with your time. I literally could talk with you for hours about hockey and sports and the environment. You'll have to come back again. I appreciate you coming in this time, and thanks for doing this. Andy, great stuff. I love your work, and I really appreciate being on. I had fun today. Thanks, man. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy, and it was co-produced and co-edited by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. We'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. Have a great week.